0: Come on. All right, good morning. Thank you, sir. All right, turn to Revelation chapter 3, if you would, please. While uh, Brother John's passing out those handouts, we're going to move on to uh, the next of the seven letters to these seven churches this morning. Of course, this is uh, the sixth of those seven letters. This is the letter to the church at Philadelphia. And although on one of the slides I did abbreviate it Philly, it's not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, obviously. But uh, it is a little bit shorter to put on a slide than... Philadelphia, but I don't know, it may be, might be, might be the original ones, you know, <laughs> uh, that's hard to say, I guess. All right, Revelation chapter 3, let's, we'll just do it this way this morning, uh, I'll ask you all to read verses 7 through 13. And there will be other verses uh, throughout the lesson that will ask uh, some volunteers to read as well. So wherever it stops, if uh, you're not opposed to reading, then whenever I call for the next verse, you would be uh, the one in line for that. Um, But Revelation chapter three, verse seven. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write: These things saith he that is holy, he that is true. He that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them, and dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy ground. In the little bit of do I make thee a In the temple of my God, he shall come to the warehouse, and I will write thee the right image. Which comes down out of from my God and I will upon him my name. He that hath an ear hear the Spirit say unto the churches. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Thank you Lord for uh, your word. thank you for the Lord Jesus. most of all. We pray that this morning you would uh, draw us closer to him and help us to be uh, just uh, observant of your truth uh, that you have for us this morning. Here in Revelation chapter 3, it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, again, you all read the verses. This is the letter from the Lord Jesus to the church at Philadelphia. And this is in the, in the circuit of these churches and in, of course, the content of Revelation. This is the sixth of those seven churches. And uh, if, uh, as, as you've probably already noticed on the handout... I've uh given this church the the description of the church of golden opportunity. Hopefully you'll see that clearly as we uh go go uh through these verses here, but you know, you think of that word opportunity um really in a way you could say life is made up of opportunities. Uh they're just uh if you want to say thing things in our lives that we make decisions decisions on and so on, but They are opportunities, of course, that the Lord affords us. And uh, opportunities can seem good. Some opportunities seem not so good. But uh, that's really how life is. Opportunities can be won or lost. They can be squandered or they can be taken advantage of, and so on and so on. And everybody's had experience in probably both directions of that in your life. And here, as the Lord writes this particular church... Um, I, I think that that idea of opportunity really stands out here, and hopefully you'll see that as we uh, uh, go through these verses. And we'll, we'll follow the same particular outline that we have for each of these seven churches, although as we saw an exception, a, a strong exception last week in the letter of the church at Sardis, we're going to see another exception This week, maybe you noticed it already as the verses were read, but in this particular letter, uh, there's no word of condemnation for this particular church. This is the second church that that has been true of. If you remember way back, the second letter, uh, the letter to the church at Smyrna, that church did not receive any word of condemnation from the Lord as well, Uh, simply... (laughs) He just told them that they needed to remain faithful, they needed to not fear and remain faithful because they were going to suffer. And uh, here, this church does not receive any word of condemnation either, and the Lord exhorts them to hold fast and continue on. However, uh, the promise that He gives them is quite different than the promise that was made to Smyrna, and we'll see that as we go through here. So... First of all, you see the church addressed. I'm not going to dwell a whole lot on this. Of course, Philadelphia, uh, this particular Philadelphia in Asia Minor was uh, a city. Actually, it was. Not, it's not compared to some of the other cities, not really a real ancient city. It was founded uh, in 140 B.C., and it was founded by the Greeks. And for the purpose, because of the, 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 the route that it was on and so on, it was founded for the purpose of... Advancing Hellenism or Greek culture and so on to toward Asia, toward that part of the world, from of course Greece, Europe, going uh, eastward there, and uh, the name comes from a particular king who was the founder of the city and he built it for another king, his brother, and uh, the idea of brotherly love uh, comes from that there but uh, Philadelphia, it's said to be located in a beautiful valley. There were a lot of uh, grapes grown there, and so that was very important to the economy uh, there as well. But this, uh, this church, like most of the other seven churches, there's a couple exceptions, but like most of them, this is really the only inspired uh, information we have about this church. All right? uh, it's not really found in anywhere else in the Bible as well. So uh, that, that again is, is, makes this an important passage of Scripture as the Lord here uh, addresses this church. So we move on in our outline. The second thing, of course, we see the Christ described. Now, in this, this is, uh, I don't know if you noticed it as we were reading, but most of the letters that we've seen, in fact, I went back and counted this morning just to kind of double check, if you want to say. And really, for the most part, each of these letters has like two, two descriptions, some only one, but like two descriptions that the Lord gives of Himself. This one has a, the longest description of Christ, of any. Uh, now, the significance of why it's longer than the rest, I, you know, I can't necessarily say, but what He says is significant, of course. And... Uh, So we see as Jesus is is telling John to write to these churches, he, of course, he speaks with authority as he says, this is what the one who, fill in the blanks here, is saying to you, to this church, okay? Now notice what he says about himself there in verse 7. He says, these things saith, he that is holy, he that is true. He that hath the key of David. That's an interesting statement. He that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. And then he goes on, I know thy works. All right. So let's, let's take a, a few moments to look at these descriptions that the Lord gives of himself here. Uh, he says, first of all, He that is holy, literally, I mean, literally, if if you were to translate it just word for word, literally, it would be the holy, the holy one, because the word holy is an adjective, okay, it's not a noun, it's an adjective, but adjectives can be used as nouns, right, stand for nouns, but, uh, but that's why the idea of the one, all right, he, but it's literally, it's just the holy. I mean, you think about that for a second, let that kind of just soak in for a bit. I mean, that is how Christ describes Himself here. I'm the holy. Of course, there's only one that that can be rightfully said of, and that is God. Um, But the Holy One, all right? The very character of Jesus Christ is holiness. He is the Holy One. Holiness is is the very essence of God's character. He is perfect in holiness. Of course, the word holy, as I'm sure that you understand, the word holy literally means set apart, separate from. All right. Now, now sometimes of course the idea in which that word is used, obviously the context of it would, you know, carry a lot of significance as to how it's to be understood. But in this case the way it's worded and of course even the context everything that's about it the idea is the lord jesus is saying this is what the holy one says in other words he's the one that's set apart from everyone and everything else he is holy it it reminds me of of many statements that the lord uh makes of himself in the book of isaiah i mean uh, and I didn't necessarily put references in here regarding that, but uh, the only reference from Isaiah that I really have on that particular note there is Isaiah 6. Remember where Isaiah saw the Lord holy, saw Him lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Isaiah had this special vision, right? And what were the seraphim that were you know, around the throne where God was, what were they crying out? Holy! Holy! Holy, holy. And the Bible says they cry that day and night. In other words, it's, it's like that's their job, to continuously proclaim the holiness of God. We'll see that again in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 when we have a glimpse into heaven there. But uh, this, this idea, again, we can't, you know, we're going to have to move on, but this is emphasized greatly here, the idea that Jesus is... Holy. He's the Holy One. And obviously, this is something that could only be said of God, of deity, of the Lord God. He is holy. This statement could be claimed by, obviously, God the Father, could be claimed by God the Son, could be claimed by God the Holy Spirit, and it is descriptive of all of them. And uh, again, just we, we could we could just dwell on this for a while but holiness this is important all right so he is the one that is totally set apart from everyone else in Isaiah some of those statements he mentions about how you know his ways are higher than our ways uh I mean he's just separate we cannot comprehend fully who God is and what he's like he is he is totally different totally on a whole different plane so to speak. he is the Holy One, all right? But notice also it says, these things say, he that is holy, he that is true. Now, by the way, let me just back up and say, it. When, when we speak of God being holy, I mean, there's a lot of things in which that encompasses, okay? It does encompass the idea that he's, he's perfectly sinless, of course, uh, but it's more than just that, okay? I mean, it's, it, it encompasses that, but it's more than that. He is set apart in every way imaginable from us, all right? But he's not only the Holy One, he is the true one. And literally, again, the same thing could be said of this. It's literally the idea of the true, the one who is true, the true one. This idea is kind of reminiscent in... in uh, Second Thessalonians chapter two, uh, a passage there that describes the Antichrist who is going to be coming. There's a phrase there that's used of him, and, and it, it talks about how when he's revealed, it says that wicked shall be revealed, all right? It, it, the way that's translated is this, it's, because it's the structure is the same way as here. It's the idea of he's the one that is the wicked one. He's the, you know, that's... that's That's how he's characterized and identified. He is the wicked one. Here, the Lord Jesus is not only the holy one, he is the true one. When you think of truth, remember Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? I mean, Jesus is truth. He is the truth, according to John 14, 6, but he is true. He's true. I mean... Just saying it that way to try to make a, a an emphasis there. He is true. Everything about him is true, and and right. He is. I mean, he is in total accord with what is factual, what is reality, as well as his honesty, his character, and so on. All of that. He's trustworthy. His conduct is true. It's always in accord with his character. Um, I didn't include this verse in there, but Andy, since you would be next, I believe, would you read 1 John chapter 5, verse 20? We're, that's close to where we are. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. Right. And we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true, and we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, i don't know if you caught it in that verse but according excuse me according to that verse it indicates that both god the father is truth and god the son is truth and uh, again, it, it, he is the true one. All right, now let, let's move on this third description. This is an interesting one here. He not only tells John to write, saying these things, saith he that is holy, he that is true. Those the, both of those statements are you could say uh, attributes. They, they speak of his character, how, who you know what he's like, who he is. And now this speaks of a little bit different here. He says he that hath the key of David. And the the rest of the statements sort of go with this, but this is, this is set apart, so we'll just kind of tra- uh, treat it here by itself for a second. The possessor of the key of David. He's the one that has, that holds, and the idea is owns the key of David. All right, now this is an interesting statement. I don't know if anybody's ever noticed this statement in the Bible before, but there's a little bit about this in the Old Testament. In fact, um, let's do this this way, Um, since you would be next, Pastor, would you read 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 18, and I'm going to ask everybody else to go back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 22. In Isaiah chapter 22, this is, of course, in the book of Isaiah, it's a prophetic book. This is, this is a prophecy about something that obviously was going to happen. And if everybody would look at verse um, 20, okay? And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and i will clothe him with my robes and strengthen him with excuse me with thy robes and will strengthen him with thy girdle and i will commit thy government into his hand and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of jerusalem and to the house of david then verse 22 and the key of the house of david will i lay upon his shoulder so he shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open and I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. And it goes on, okay? So but the point of this, there's a prophetic little prophecy here talking about how this man Eliakim the son of Hilkiah, how he would basically be promoted to be uh it says to to have to be uh To hold, I'm trying to think how best to word it here, but he's going to receive, I think that's really the best way to say it here, the key to the house of David. And because of that, he's going to administrate here. All right? Now, that said, all right, the, the verse that the pastor's going to read in 2 Kings, this is from the historical books, okay? Which, if you put this in a chronological context, this statement would come in history after. Isaiah 22, it fits in with Isaiah chapter 36 through 38, okay? Um, And so, would you read that verse, Pastor? And just listen for the names that are here. And when they had called to the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, which was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. All right, so there, in that verse, again, that happens after in a chronological standpoint than the verses that we looked at in Isaiah, but there the name comes up, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and what is he called there? Anybody catch that? Says that he is over the household of David, All right? In other words, he's the steward. Now the king at that time, does anybody know who the king was at that time? This is when the Assyrians came to besiege Jerusalem. Uh, Hezekiah is the king, all right? So Hilkiah is like the steward, the chief servant, if you want to say, for Hezekiah. In other words, he's the one that ran the whole thing. Kind of like uh, maybe if you could think of it in our situation today, all right? You have a president and then he has a cabinet, right? Which is they each have different areas that they're over, but there's a guy that's called his chief of staff all right who basically is the one who's kind of like the right arm of the president constantly doing you know running things for him i guess you could say similar now maybe not exactly but similarly this man Hilkiah was the he was over the house of david all right it says in isaiah 22 over the house In Hezekiah was the king. So Hezekiah is the king, but this man was given, according to Isaiah 22, the key to the house of David. It was his to administer, he was the steward of that. Similar to how Joseph, but way back in the book of Genesis, Pharaoh made, I mean, Pharaoh was still Pharaoh, but when he promoted Joseph, Basically, Joseph was the one who ran the country. He was the administrator, all right? Pharaoh was still the ruler, the sovereign, if you want to say, but Joseph was given the the stewardship, the responsibility of running the day-to-day things in the kingdom uh, because he demonstrated he had the capabilities of doing that, all right? And so similarly, this man Hilkiah was the steward. He was the one who was basically running the household there, but it's the household of David, okay? Hezekiah is the son of David. I'm just trying to get you to see something here in this. So he was the administrator. So the one who at that time would have been said to have owned the key of David would have been Hezekiah. The one who it was given to, right, it says there, it uses the term laid upon his shoulder, was... Hilkiah, all right? In other words, he had a responsibility given to him, all right? Now, in, back in our passage in Revelation 3 here, when the Lord Jesus is describing himself, he tells the church at Philadelphia that he's not only the holy one, the true one, but he's the one who possesses, owns, and, and the idea here is it's not just something that he like, holds in his hand to use, but he's the true owner right, of the key of David. Now, it doesn't say of the house of David, but the key of David. This certainly seems to be uh, indicative, if you want to say, of the Lord Jesus' lineage. He's of the line of David, right? He's the seed of David that's especially emphasized in the Davidic covenant in, in 1 Chronicles' account of it. Solomon is the one that's emphasized in 2 Samuel's account of it. Uh, but he's the one that has the right to the house of David or to the kingdom. That's the idea, right? And I, I think this is, again, it's prophetic of his messianic kingdom, which is yet to come. It's descriptive of that. Now, having the keys and then using the keys and so on refers to administrative authority and so on. Uh, in and of the king's house. We read the passage back there in Isaiah. And again, at that particular time there, it's referring to a man by the name of Eliakim. But here, Jesus says he's the one that is possessing and he's the owner. He owns this key. And of course, this signifies his sovereignty, that he is the rightful ruler, right? He's not only holy, he's not only true, which these speak more of, who he is, his character, but he also has rights. And he is the rightful ruler. And in this case, it's again, emphasizing of the throne of David. So that that messianic throne, which when that happens will be a universal throne. It will be a worldwide kingdom. And he will rule this world with a rod of iron, the Bible says. Um, because there will be many that will rebel against him, at least at the beginning of it. And he will have to rule with a rod of iron. He will put them down. All right? But notice, uh, when you think about this, all right, he's the one that has the keys. Now, particularly, again, the way this relates to this church, it's more of opportunity, and we'll speak more about that here in just a moment. But He's the one possessing this key, the one who really is the sovereign, all right? Now, there are other keys spoken of in the Bible several times. Um, I mean, think about about these things, all right? Jesus talks about in uh, Revelation 1.18, remember the vision that John sees? And how Jesus, when, when John falls at his feet as dead, remember, after he sees Jesus, and then Jesus lays his right hand on him and says, fear not, and then how does you know one of the things that he says about himself in that immediate context is he's the one that has the keys of hell and of death. All right, he's the one that has all the sovereign power of of hell and of death. All right, and he's conquered that. All right? So you think of that as God, he deserves that, but as a man, Jesus in his obedience to God the Father, he earned that as well. He not only deserves it because of who he is, but he earned, he proved, if you want to say, his right to that through his total obedience as a man and as as a man as the son of David. And then uh, in Matthew 16, that's an interesting passage there. Jesus refers to the keys of the kingdom. And in that context, Peter uh, is the one being addressed and Jesus said he'll he gives him the keys of the kingdom now I by the way I don't think that's limited to Peter but the point is again there's there's some significance to this all right um, and then in uh, in Luke chapter 11 there's another reference to keys there Jesus rebukes the Jewish lawyers those who had the responsibility of knowing and teaching the Old Testament law. He rebukes them for taking away the key of knowledge from the people of Israel because they had polluted their teaching concerning the law. And the law was given as a way for men to know their sinfulness before God. And yet the, they had perverted the law as, as trying to use it as a means of salvation and so on. But Jesus rebukes them. So think of this, all right? He's the one with the key. He's the sovereign possessor of these keys this authority all right but then he also says about this he says he that hath the key of david he that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth now these statements kind of you know go together here he in other words because of who he is and the authority that he has he says I'm the one that can open, and there's nobody that can close it if I open it. And I'm the one that can shut, and if I shut, nobody can open it. I mean, again, this speaks of his his not just sovereign authority, but of his ability as well. Because the word that's used here for uh, where it says no man... no man openeth, no man shutteth. The idea is literally it's no man is able to. I mean, there's a power, ability involved in that as well. So uh, it, there's sovereignty and then ability that goes with that in the mm-hmm. Lord Jesus. He's the one that opens and shuts. And again, this concerns His sovereign work in this world. I mean, think about this. God opens doors for His people to serve Him. He opens Doors of opportunity, and then he also shuts doors. I mean, you can think about this just looking in the book of Acts at the Apostle Paul's ministry in uh, in Acts chapter sixteen. Paul uh, or Luke is writing, but he says, you know, Paul, we we essayed to do this, we we tried to go this way, and so on. The the Spirit forbade us, uh, and then they they see a Macedonia vision, and and they they the way Luke writes that I. I have to turn to it to find the exact verse, but he writes of that saying, we assuredly recognize, and, and I'm paraphrasing now, but he says we assuredly, you know, recognize this as the will of God. And, and so it wasn't just Paul, but the others with him realized this was God opening this you know, direction, opportunity. And I'm not sure who's next, I think, John, are you next? Can you turn to... Um, I believe it's, uh, I have it somewhere else, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and uh, read verses 8 through 10, if you would. This is Paul, he's writing a letter to the church at Corinth, but he is presently, as he's writing that, in the city of Ephesus. Remember, he spent a long time in Ephesus. And um, but he writes about and notice the wording of what he says. Would you read that? First Corinthians sixteen eight through ten says, "But I will tarry, <clears throat> but I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and these are many adversaries. Now if Timotheus come, see that he may be with you without fear, for he worketh the work of the Lord, as I also do." Notice, I think it's in verse 9 there where he says, there's a great door and effectual opened unto me. Paul recognized that God had opened a door of opportunity and his desire, the idea is he's writing to the Corinthians and he wants to go see them because there's needs there, but he recognizes this is where I'm going to stay for a while because of this opportunity. And uh, it's in that same place written of in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19 where it says there that all that everyone in Asia heard the word of the Lord as a result of the ministry that was going on in Ephesus I mean again just an example but the Lord is the one who opens and shuts and again when when the Lord opens no one can shut that when the Lord shuts no one can open that I mean there's a there's a sovereign action there now obviously when you when you when you think of the the bigger picture of a bigger teaching of the bible obviously we have responsibility in all of those things as well and and so on and and somehow or not human responsibility mixes w- with god's sovereignty if you want to say in that but god is certainly sovereign in his opening and shutting of of doors okay now we got to move on so the, the Roman numeral number three, third point in our, in our big outline that we look at every time here with these letters, the commendation deserved. And, and there's, uh, it's interesting when you, when you think about the, the things that the Lord says about these churches, when he, the, you know, the statements that he gives in commending these churches. It, it's almost like some of the ones that he condemns the most, he says the most good about too. I mean, you think of the list of the the church at Thyatira, particularly. There's a long list of things that he said that were good that he, you know, and then then he has to deliver such a condemning, uh, you know, uh, statement to them as well. When you look at this list, it's. I mean, I'm not I'm not degrading it whatsoever, but it's not like there's a whole long list of great things here. When you compare this to the church at Ephesus, the, another. I mean quite an impressive list of commendable things that the Lord said about the church at Ephesus. But he had something against them because they had left their first love. Here, I mean, there's not a great long list of things, but it is commendable, all right? So notice he says in verse eight, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee, notice this statement, how it fits with what we just saw. I have set before thee an open door and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. I mean, really, what the Lord is saying, I know your works, now you have a little strength. I mean, think about that. The idea, literally, it's emphasized that these, this church, the, the people here, there was just, what, what they had was small. I mean, again, that's not typically something you think of as being some great thing, right? What they had was small, but he says they've kept his word. Notice that. They've kept his word, and they haven't denied his name. And that's, that's really the commendation that Jesus gives to this church. But he didn't have anything to rebuke them about either. I mean, again point being is when the Lord looks at these things, you know that, I mean, it's what the Lord knows that's important, not what man sees in, in any situation, any case. Uh, but they had been faithful in matters in which a church should be faithful. They had kept His word. In other words, they did what He said. Isn't that what the Lord demands? I mean, he just, he just wants us to obey and be faithful. That's really it. Now, there's individual opportunities that God gives, and each one of those are different, and in any one of those given opportunities, our responsibility is to what? Obey and be faithful. Obey and be faithful. Whatever that is, right? Whatever that opportunity is. And the Lord is stressing here that in the opportunity He had given them, they had obeyed, and they had been faithful, and that's commendable. That's what the Lord desires. First uh, Corinthians four, two. You know, moreover, it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. That's what God expects: is faithfulness. God's not looking at our uh, bank accounts. He's not looking at our 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 you know our our. Anything that might impress other human beings, you know, what? he's concerned about faithfulness. So they had, they had and their, their faithfulness was exemplary. They had some evident deeds. They had exemplary faithfulness. They had kept Christ's word, which again, speaks of obedience. Obedience is expected. Obedience will be reward, rewarded. Obedience is proof of salvation. Now a person is not saved by works. But the Bible does teach that works will follow salvation, period. Now, again, we have to be careful when we think of that, okay, because our view of things can be miscued because, number one, we don't see it all, right? God's the only one that sees it all. And and the whole big picture of this is, is seen evident here, all right? What other people probably saw of this church may not have been impressive, but God says they were obedient and faithful. To Him, that's what counts. All right, so, you know, obedience to God, again, it's expected, it's re- it will be rewarded, it is proof of salvation, and it's proof of faith. All right, faith, saving faith, and, you know, I mean, we can, like James 2 says, you can say you have faith, but faith without works is? dead it's proof of love as well jesus said if you love me keep my you'll keep my commandments i mean this is i mean if we start thinking about these things though this this is, should be humbling because this is <laughs> this is uh simple in a way but it's it's this is tough stuff this is deep stuff here really that obe- you know, obedience right he says they haven't denied his name Speaks of their endurance, their patience, literally. They're enduring uh, and not denying Him, all right? And, and some examples of that kind of thing there in the book of Acts. And then, again, letter C, example of divine cooperation. So when Jesus is commending them, He, he mentions what He sees that He will reward, right, in their on their behalf, but He also reminds them... That it's, I mean, it's his working that counts. We can't, you know, with the, last week we talked about the church at Sardis, right? They had a name that they lived, but they were dead. I mean, this church here, all right, obviously was trying to serve the Lord in his strength. Church at Sardis was doing it in the flesh. There's a big difference in the two. And so the example of divine cooperation, I mean, the Lord's the one that opened the door, right? That was His doing. That's not theirs. We cannot open those doors, but we must go through those doors when the Lord opens them for us. If the Lord shuts the doors, we shouldn't keep trying to knock on them. I mean, you see the point, all right? There's, there's a, you know, and Paul talks about how we're laborers together, 1 Corinthians 3, and so on, not just with each other, but laborers together with God. It's God's work, and we need to be working with Him, and of course, Him working through us. All right, and then we, uh, you know, their faithfulness. The Lord commended them for their faithfulness, but He also attributes it to His. Not shutting the door as well. I mean, it, it, we must rely on the Lord, all right and and so on. but and then an example, and we already mentioned a little bit of that, of Paul's opportunity in Asia, and so on. All right, And then uh, Roman numeral four, we'll just touch on this, and then I think we'll save verses 10 and following for for later. But the condemnation delivered, well, like at Smyrna. There's no word of condemnation given to this church. There's no condemning words here. The Lord doesn't tell them He is rebuking this and they, they need to repent and so on. So really there's no word of correction either, as we'll see. But instead of that, He inserts something else that we'll, we'll look at again next week. We don't have time today. But... There's no word of condemnation given to this church. Jesus does not issue condemnation to those who, I should say, he does issue condemnation to those who opposed this church. Notice there in verse 9, he says, but I will make them of the synagogue of Satan. Now that's an interesting thing, which say they are Jews and are not. That's at least, I think, the third time now we've seen that sort of reference in these letters to these churches Uh, it does seem obvious that this is probably talking about jewish people all right and you think about this in the book of acts who were the very first if you want to say formal opposition who formed the very first opposition against the churches in the book of acts it was the jews the Jewish leadership doesn't mean all individual that's not the point but as a as a as a movement as you know as a a religious uh group they are the ones that start i mean the roman empire didn't didn't jump on board persecuting the christians till later it was the jews that started it and uh again The Lord, that that doesn't escape, you know, it doesn't go under his radar, I guess you could say, and he says, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Now, that's an interesting statement. I don't think that he's saying that he's going to have the Jews come worship them, all right, because there's only one that gets worship, and that's God, but... Very possibly, this is a reference because of other things that are also referenced in, in this letter a little later, this is quite possibly a reference to when they stand before God in judgment, those in this church at Philadelphia, and probably not just the Philadelphian church, but they, they will be present and it will be recognized by those being judged that these ones who they persecuted are the ones that the Lord loves. And every knee is going to bow before Jesus, and confess that He is Lord to the glory of God, according to Philippians chapter 2. And, and I don't know all the details, how all that's going to pan out and and all of that, but it will happen, and apparently it is possible at least, based on this passage, that that not only are they recognizing Jesus, but they're also going to recognize those that had that they had rejected, if you want to say, who had tried to witness to them, and various things of that sort, um, I don 't know for sure, but it's sort of possibility there in that, all right, so what we 're going to stop here just because of time, and we'll pick up here with looking at the rest of this letter because there's there's some important things in this letter yet it's not the longest of these letters, but there's there's some very important uh, material here le- yet in this letter but uh What we certainly can see about this is that Jesus is sovereign, He's the Lord, and He gives opportunities, He opens doors, shuts doors, etc. It's our responsibility to uh, be aware of those and be faithful. That's what He's commending this church for. They were obedient and they were faithful. That's it, simply. I mean, no law. And He even mentions they were small, they had little strength. And there's an emphasis there on that idea that they were, you know, just small, minute strength. But they were relying on the Lord, obviously. And His strength is, of course, unlimited. So, example for us in that. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for, of course, just the Lord Jesus. Help us to love and appreciate Him as we ought and serve Him as we ought. We ask these things in His name. Amen.